Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm in the studio again this week with... Yo, Caleb Branson in the house. <laughs> and? Ariana. Ariana and Caleb, who both were in this Western Civ class that was making students read Reza Aslan's book, Sell It. And we have the opportunity this morning to continue... Our interview, which began last week with Dr. Daryl Bach of Dallas Theological Seminary. Dr. Daryl Bach is a world-renowned scholar in this field, and he's going to be answering some of the questions that are brought up in that book, as well as questions brought up in many other different books and other different fields of study. It's going to be an incredible interview, and I'm so glad that Dr. Daryl Bach is coming on the show today. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Bach before we get to the second part of the interview. And again, you can get last week's show, the first part of our interview with Dr. Bach at GodSolutionsShow.com. Well, here is a little of what the Dallas Theological Seminary says about Dr. Bach. And of course, that's where he is a professor. Dr. Bach has earned international recognition as a Humboldt scholar for his work in Luke and Acts, historical Jesus study, biblical theology, as well as with Messianic Jewish ministries. He served as the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. He is editor-at-large for Christianity Today. He is on the board of Chosen People Ministries and Wheaton College. He is a well-known author of over 30 books on biblical topics, and he's been a New York Times best-selling author in nonfiction. He has contributed articles to leading journals and periodicals, including many secular publications. He has done a variety of media shows, including work with ABC, CNN, Day of Discovery, and The John Ankerberg Show. He has blogged on culture and scripture for over seven years. You can read his blogs at dts.edu slash the table. You can read his blogs at dts.edu slash the table. That has both his blog and his podcast. You can get his other blog at bible.org. You should also check out some of his books. You can go to the Daryl Bach page on Amazon.com or just search his name, Daryl Bach, on Amazon to see a list of his books. Here are a few book suggestions that I think you should check out. You should check out Truth in a Culture of Doubt, Engaging Skeptical Challenges to the Bible. That's one he co-authored with a couple other authors, and it is a response to Ehrman, who we're going to be discussing some today. It's a book that I'm reading right now. It just came out about five, six weeks ago, and it's a great read, so please check it out. You could also check out Who is Jesus? Linking the historical Jesus with the Christ of Faith, Recovering the Real Lost Gospel, Reclaiming the Gospel as Good News, Jesus According to Scripture, Restoring the Portrait from the Gospels, Studying the Historical Jesus, A Guide to Sources and Methods, Jesus in Context, Background Readings for Gospel Study, and Truth Matters, Confident Faith in a Confusing World. Last week, we discussed a whole lot about The Da Vinci Code, which was Dan Brown's novel, but unfortunately, a lot of people forget that it is a novel, and a lot of people take it as history. So I thought it would be good to deal with some of the issues that it brings up. Of course, it's quite the old book, and it's kind of old news, but the reality is some of the issues that it brings up persist in a lot of people's minds today. A lot of people would say, wasn't Jesus married? Weren't the Gospels that are in the New Testament just cherry-picked from a whole lot of others, from the early church councils? 
what's going on with all these types of questions. So last week we talked about some of those issues. He is one of the greatest experts in the world on those very things. So I thought if we have him on the air, might as well talk about some of those things with him. You could get that show again at godsolutionshow.com. Well, this week we're going to continue talking about Ehrman. The end of last week's show just began to get into the topic of Ehrman and his work. This week we're going to pick right back up with Ehrman and some of his work talking with Dr. Bach about it. Dr. Bach has debated Ehrman, and he's written responses to Ehrman's work, and it's going to be great hearing a little bit more today about what he thinks about a lot of Ehrman's work and some of the scholarly answers to the questions Ehrman raises. So I'm glad you're tuned in this morning. It's going to be a great, great show. So let's get right back to the interview with Dr. Daryl Bach. So Ehrman claims that the problem of pain was a major factor in his rejection of Christianity, and he actually wrote an entire book on that topic. What's wrong with that analysis? Well, the problem with that analysis is is that it, <laughs> on what basis are you going to make the analysis? You can't you can't talk about the standard by which to judge um, the way our creation works and whether there's a right or wrong to it unless you have some standards of right and wrong to apply to it. If you pull God out of the question, out of the equation, where did those standards come from? Uh, how do you even make those judgments? So it isn't to say that the world is not a messy place. It is. Theology says we live in a fallen world. There's a lot of pain. Uh, why God allows that pain is part of the story of Scripture and part of the uh, of the response is, is that he has made us and created us to be responsible moral beings. And so we end up being accountable and responsible for the consequences of, of the choices that we make. And certainly not all the pain of the world comes from, from that, but a lot of it does. Um, our mortality is part of a reminder of the fact that we are creatures. We are not immoral beings. Um, and so uh, we are accountable to a creator, and our mortality helps us to show that. There's obviously pain that comes with mortality. And so uh, you are dealing with a, a challenge that, on the one hand, isn't equipped to issue the challenge because in order to issue it, you've got to have the standards by which to make the evaluation. But if you don't have a God, there are there are no standards like that. We're just here, and it's just kind of a random accident. And then the second part of the equation is is that our existence in a fallen world is something that theology recognizes, and it's part of both, if I can say this, the blessing and curse of being made as a responsible moral being uh, whose actions uh, do have consequences. God doesn't go around... Uh, like a magician just kind of correcting uh, our missteps. Um, he allows us to experience the the moral outcome of the choices that we make. And, and then he appeals to us to think through uh, our need for him in the midst of recognizing that sometimes we make some very bad choices and do some very damaging things. Can you summarize a few of the main mistakes Ehrman is making and where he is wrong in them? Well, I mean, it's kind of like, where do you begin? <laughs> um, there's, there's just an array of stuff. It really depends on the topic that you're talking about. For example, in discussing that the, there are contradictions in the Bible, the assumption is, is that if two statements 
uh, don't agree with one another, that difference basically equals contradiction. Well, difference doesn't necessarily equal contradiction. If you ask my wife and me about our courtship, you'll probably get some overlapping events. She'll probably tell you some things that I w won't mention, and I'll mention some things she won't mention. And even the events that we share, we might talk about from a different angle, but that doesn't necessarily mean because there are differences, there are contradictions in place. Sometimes the angle of and perspective on a story is giving you exactly that, a different but related and true angle to the story uh, that you're telling. And so... Um, so that's one example. Another example uh, deals with the way he handles text criticism in the manuscript tradition. The New Testament is the most widely and best attested ancient book uh, that we have, bar none. I mean, it's literally miles ahead of anything else that we have out of the ancient world. Uh, and and so we can be very, very confident of the text that we have in our hands, even the places where we're not exactly sure what the original wording is. In a Bible, in a good study Bible, there'll be a note in the margin that says or that tells you what the alternative reading is. None of those differences impacts the core teaching and theology of Christianity. What it impacts are how many, how many passages apply to the, to the doctrine or the teaching that we're looking at. That's, that's what gets changed impacted by those differences, not the content as a whole. So that's a that's a second kind of area that we deal with. In dealing with the resurrection, he does a very poor job in thinking that either the body was stolen or that it was allowed to rot on a cross. That's just, um, how can I say it, that's just historically absolutely implausible because how do you get the launch of the Christian movement if everyone knows when Jesus was crucified that he simply was left on the cross for his body to rot. Um, the people in Jerusalem would have known that. The claim of the empty tomb would have been seen to be bogus. So the idea that Jesus was just left for dead and that there is no real empty tomb to which the church could have appealed is a case of looking back at history 2,000 years later without understanding the actual dynamics of what produced that history to begin with. Um, so there are there are lots of problems that Ehrman has in in the variety of things that that he asserts. The hard part about Ehrman is is that there's a lot of stuff that he asserts in terms of the, what's going on content-wise in the Bible, not how he spins it, that is there, and he he uses those pieces and then spins it in such a way that that you get a very skeptical take on 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 how the Bible is being handled and how the Bible should be read. Unfortunately, that, uh, that, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, uh, that's not the only story. Ehrman's story about how this material works is not the only story. So you've debated, Ehrman. How did you like that debate? I guess, um, what was it like to debate him? Kind of a side issue. Well, but he, just you know, he's, he's, a very, he's a very articulate representative of the view that he has. And, you know, we have a very um, direct conversation about about historical events and the details of how the text works and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a conversation that's worth having because, uh, because it is a reflection of the conver larger conversation in the public square. Uh, uh, you know, he has a point of view that he comes with just like I do, and we just kind of, 
um, share why we think differently about things. And and so from that standpoint, I think for a listener, it's a very um, interesting exchange, and they get a sense about why these things get discussed. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being willing to do this hard work and equipping us with answers kind of on the ground level here on the college campus. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR, 91.9 and 93.9 FM in Durango and KDUR.org online. I am so glad that you're tuned in for the second part of our interview with Dr. Daryl Buck. Again, you can get the first part of this interview at godsolutionshow.com, and you can tune in next week for the last part of our interview with Dr. Daryl Bach, world-renowned scholar, talking about Bart Ehrman and his work this morning on The God Solution Show. One thing that I do appreciate about Ehrman is that he's obviously honest enough to agree with the scholarly consensus that Jesus literally existed and that he's a historical figure. You know, you hear these crazy statements on campus like, I don't even know whether Jesus existed or not, things like that. And Ehrman even refers to that kind of perspective in his second to most recent book as mythicism. So he agrees that Jesus is a historical figure and he agrees with a lot of the historical statements about Jesus, but he seems overly eager to disprove the resurrection, and you kind of hinted at this a minute ago, and I was interviewing Dr. Gary Habermas, it was one of our interviews that we had with him, and I asked him about Ehrman's claim. Ehrman says, and Jesus interrupted, he gives an alternate theory for the resurrection, claiming it wasn't really a resurrection. You named a couple of those alternate theories, and then he admits, he goes, is my theory plausible? Absolutely not. I'm paraphrasing, but he goes, but it's more plausible than a resurrection, kind of importing his his presupposition of naturalism into his conclusion. You guys actually deal with that very thing in your book, his his presupposition on that topic and how that comes into his his answer, kind of circular reasoning there. Would you like to talk any more about that? Well, no, I, th- I think you're right that there is a circular reasoning in, in a lot of what he does. There's a there's a skepticism that always takes uh, uh, takes um, I would say a disjointed view of what's happening in the text. Um, there, there is a, a strand of scholarship that's very much against the idea of what's called harmonizing the text, which is uh, taking the two uh, disparate elements and in, in asking how they might fit together that, that I, like I said difference equals contradiction so you're not supposed to go there well, these are all uh, presuppositions in terms of how things work they're sometimes slow to apply literary categories to the differences that we see uh, there, there, there are lots of parallel events in the gospels where we get the same event described by different writers with different details I mean the famous one of the most famous examples is the healing of the centurion's servant. And in Matthew, Jesus and the centurion have a face-to-face discussion, while in Luke, Jesus never actually speaks directly to the centurion. It's all done through emissaries. And so the question is raised, how could this pos- It's clearly the same event that's being described by the placement, relative placement in the two Gospels. And so, you know, the question comes up, well, how can this be? You can't have this both ways. Well, the way you can sort it out is to recognize that Luke is giving you the detail and then to be aware of an ancient custom that existed, which was called the Shaliach uh, custom. It's the 
uh, apostolic custom, if, if you will, that if I send someone in my name, it's as good as me speaking to you as their representative. The closest example we have of this today is the press secretary who speaks on behalf of the president. And so, you know, we don't we don't regard the press secretary's utterance significant because of who he is. We regard his utterance significant because of who he represents. And uh, in the ancient world, uh, there was this idea, too, so that Jesus could send out his disciples and say, you know, if someone hears you, they're hearing me. So in the context of telling the story of this healing, um, Luke is trying to bring out Jew-Gentile relationships as well as the miracles. So he shows Jew, Jewish emissaries speaking on behalf of a Gentile. And in the, and in the midst of that, we get uh, more detail about the event than Matthew's giving it. Matthew has collapsed and simplified the event by, um, by allowing the representation of the centurion coming through the messengers to be expressed more directly. That's a literary difference that's creating that. And working with these variety of categories in terms of how the scripture works helps us with some of these uh, sensitive topics that sometimes come up where uh, on the surface it looks like there's a real difference and maybe even a significant problem. And I think if I'm remembering correctly, in truth and a culture of doubt, you guys mentioned how Dr. Blomberg, who was on the show recently, discussed and showed how in the in that time period harmonization was a legitimate aspect of other historical documents outside of the New Testament. That's correct, right? Yes, it is. And um in fact there's work being done in this area. In fact you can even see it within the New Testament. Um the example I like to point out is is that when you watch Luke retell the story of how um, Jesus appeared to Paul on the Damascus Road or to Saul on the Damascus Road. We get that story told three times in the book of Acts. We get it in chapter 9, chapter 22, and chapter 26. It's the same author writing all three uh, presentations, and there are differences between the presentations because one of the characteristics of living in an oral culture, which was what the first century culture was, is that when you tell a story, you don't retell it exactly the same way because you want people to stay interested in the story rather than tuning you out by saying, oh, I've heard all this before. And so what you get in the retelling is the injection of fresh details and, and new elements in the retelling that you didn't tell the first time. So the story is both the same and a little bit different. Uh, and in the midst of that, um, you keep the interest of the person even as you make the point that this is an important event because I'm going about the trouble of retelling it. And so we see that uh, not just in outside writings of the New Testament, we even see it within the Bible itself in terms of how it handles itself. Okay, can a Christian believe with confidence that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, yeah, I mean, I think so. I'm, the whole Christian movement is premised on the on that very fact that the martyrdom of the first generation of people who walked and talked with Jesus is premised on that fact that something caused them to go from being despondent when Jesus was crucified to being bold after they sensed that he was raised from the dead. This isn't something they generated for themselves. It wasn't part of a plot that they hatched to try and keep hope alive. They didn't even need to go there if that wasn't really uh, a real part of the story. You know, to declare that Jesus is the Son of God who's seated at the right hand of the Father whom God has raised, uh, with all the pressure that that put on them as Jewish people speaking to other uh, Jewish people, and particularly with the Jewish leadership, if they didn't have to go there, there was no reason to go there. 
uh, why take on that risk, why take on that burden, that kind of thing. Well, the resurrection is um, is such a how can I say it? Such a paradigm changing event, such a such a deal changer uh, that. Uh, it, it's something that that had to have happened in order for these former Jewish people who used to confess that there was one God to believe and come to the point where they thought, well, there is one God, but He has also expressed Himself in His Son and has uh, sent Him in 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 the flesh to reflect who He is and to complete His promises. So, yeah, I think the resurrection is uh, a real event. I think the early disciples were convinced it was a real event. And what non-conservatives will tend to do is to say, yes, they were convinced of it, but they had psychologically put themselves in a place uh, where they, um, where they, uh, you know, it was something that they hoped to believe rather than knowing that it really happened. So they make a distinction between the disciples' perception that the resurrection happened and their deep belief that it happened and whether it was a real event or not. I don't think you go there in terms of life and death uh, and martyrdom unless they're really unless that conviction really is there for some type of a solid reason. And that's basically the skeptic trying to harmonize their theory with with the historical evidence, is it not? Aren't they trying to kind of force their theory on the evidence there if they do that? Yes, I think that's exactly what's going on, and uh, uh, you know, it, it's it, it, it's this is one of these discussions in which, because I think what happens is because we're two thousand years removed from the events, and we can imagine all kinds of possible scenarios for how we get what we have, that's what you see happening uh, oftentimes on the more skeptical side of things. Um, but the reality is is that you had something concrete that really changed the way the disciples viewed God, the way they viewed promise, the way they saw themselves. And their explanation for this are these events that they participated in in the earliest generation. You know, Acts calls these people witnesses. And the point is is that they were there, they saw and heard what took place, and that's what they wrote about and taught. And uh, and I think that's a much better explanation than the idea that the church came along and made up categories and created space, theological space, for things that actually didn't happen at the risk of their lives. It just doesn't make sense to think about that uh, happening in that way. All right. Any last thoughts on Ehrman or his work? Uh, no, we're. I think we've <laughs> we, we've covered it pretty fully. Absolutely. And if anybody's more interested in that topic or wants to research more, check out Truth in a Culture of Doubt. It's a great read. Well, I hope you enjoyed everything that Dr. Bach had to say. There was a lot of good stuff there. And again, if you've read Ehrman or encountered him in school or elsewhere, I would ask you to get Dr. Bach's latest book, Truth in a Culture of Doubt, Engaging Skeptical Challenges to the Bible, where he deals extensively with Ehrman and some of the problems in his research and in his work. I would also encourage you to go to godsolutionshow.com and look up some of our past interviews with some of the scholars that are debating Ehrman. You could look up our interviews with Dr. Michael Byrd, Chris Tilling, Chuck Hill, 
Craig Evans, Craig Blomberg, Gary Habermas, Mike Lacona, Ben Witherington. We've talked to all of them and probably others that aren't coming to mind right now about Ehrman. So look at some of those interviews on the God Solution Show, as well as some of the shows I've done on Ehrman, and you'll get a lot of good information about Ehrman and his work. Well, again, I hope you enjoyed what Dr. Bach had to say this morning about Ehrman, and I hope that you're filled again with faith, knowing that you can have confidence in the historical reliability of the portrait of Jesus that we see in the Gospels. This is great news, but it doesn't just end with this good news. The good news is actually relevant to you in life today. See, there's never been a religious figure in all of history that claimed to have answers as far as life after death and eternity that actually backed it up by beating death. Jesus did just that, like we talked about today. The evidence is overwhelming for Christ's resurrection. And you can believe with confidence that he conquered death for you and for me. So here's what the Bible tells us about how we relate to God and what it takes to be in eternity with him. I recently had a student say, Nate, what does it take to gain eternal life? Just bluntly, what does it take? And I explained this short message to him. The Bible tells us that God loves each and every one of us. That's a reality of Scripture. We see it in the most famous verse in all the Bible, John 3:16. Now, unfortunately, even though God loves you and has a plan for your life and created you to be in relationship with him, you and I and Dr. Bach and everyone you see is sinful, and our sin, our selfishness, our pride separates us from God. See, sin always separates friendships. Sin always interrupts relationship, and it's done that with us and God. So our sin has separated us from God here on this planet and left unmitigated, left undealt with. That sin would separate us from God for all of eternity in what the Bible calls hell, a place separated from God. That's horrible. That's not good news. I told that to someone once, and they said, if that's true, why are Christians happy all the time? Well, we're happy because it doesn't end there. The reality is that God became a man, Jesus, God in human flesh. He lived a perfect life that I could never live. And then he died on the cross paying for the sin that he didn't commit, but that I committed. See, he paid for my sins on the cross. The Bible says he nailed my sins to the cross. The truth this morning is that Jesus died on the cross for you and me, and he did that so that you could... Go to heaven because your sins were paid for in a way that you could never do it on your own. And all it takes to receive that free gift of forgiveness and eternal life is to put your faith in Jesus, receiving him as Savior and Lord, confessing him as Lord with your mouth, and believing that he really died for your sins and rose again to give you new life. If you're at that point today and want to take that step, I would invite you to do it with me expressing that verbally through prayer this morning. You could say, Jesus, thank you so much for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for rising again to give me new life. I ask you to come into my life to be my Savior and Lord. Please make me the kind of person that you want me to be. The Bible says if you've taken that step and truly put your faith and trust in him and surrendered your life to him this morning, that you've been adopted into his family and that you can look forward to a lifetime on this earth of purpose and meaning and relationship with God, and you can look forward to an eternity with him in heaven that will never end, not because you were good enough, but because he did it for you. He made the way for you. See, there's no other way 
by which we can be saved other than Jesus Christ. There's no other way to heaven than Jesus himself. He told us that, and he proved that he had the authority to say that by conquering death himself. So many people say, I can't believe in Jesus because he's so exclusive. How arrogant to say you're the only way. And I ask, well, how many others have actually proven that they were worth listening to? How many others actually conquered death? See, he's the only one that actually backed his claim up with a reason to put your faith and trust in him. So I hope that you'll take him at his word today, and I hope that you will follow him this morning, making him your Savior and Lord by faith. Now, if you took that step, you can start growing closer to him by visiting a local church this morning. You could go to godsolutionshow.com and see the churches tab where we have a list of local churches and the times and the places that they meet. I would encourage you to visit a local church this morning. You could also go to Connect This Week, another great place to grow in your faith. That's right here on campus in Noble Hall, 125, Tuesday at 6 p.m. Again, Noble Hall, 125, Tuesday at 6 p.m. I hope to see you there. It'll be a great night. We'll have food and snacks and a great time praising God and growing closer to him, learning from his word. So I hope to see you Tuesday at 6 p.m. in Noble Hall, 125. Well, I also hope that you'll go to GodSolutionShow.com and check out this interview and last week's interview with Dr. Daryl Bach and the many other episodes that we have of the God Solution online. There are almost 200, and you can hear interviews with many top scholars like Dr. Bach, and you can hear many other episodes on many different topics relating to faith. I hope you'll check it out this morning. Well, like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. And that's my hope, that you'll find him this morning if you haven't before, and that if you have, you'll take a confident step of faith following him and growing closer to him today. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you tune in next week for the third and last part of our interview with Dr. Bach. Have a wonderful Sunday afternoon. <laughs>